Let's hear some of that movie chat. Credits roll by and I tip my hat. Credits roll by, I wanna know more right away. Let's have some of that movie chat. Credits roll by, tell me who did that. Life in the credits is where I wanna play. Welcome to Life in the Credits. This is the show where we learn about movies by chatting with people who work in the industry. I'm Susan. And I'm Ben. Today we'll be discussing the film 1917. And joining us today is our special guest, Will Dearborn. Hi, Hi Will. Will. Hi, guys. Thanks for joining us today, Will. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Will, can you tell us what do you do in the film industry? So I am a motion picture and television camera operator is my official title. I work on union films and television shows, and I've been working in the camera department since the late 90s when I got in the union. Very cool. What was kind of the path you took toward this career? What's sort of your background? So my background, I, I was, uh, my background was English literature in college, oh. and I spent some time um, in, uh, in Europe, and I discovered films or sort of films as a narrative art, uh, and I became interested in them while I was in Germany. I took a class called Americans in Germany, Germans in America, and I saw the film Paris, Texas. And I was, I had never seen anything like that before. I was probably 20 years old and I had never really, um, I, I was never really exposed to art cinema or indie, indie filmmaking or anything like that, or, or kind of like cultural cinema. I grew up in central Kentucky. There were no art, art film houses or art cinemas near me that, that I would have been exposed to. We had a blockbuster in our town. That, yeah. that was about it. So, um, you know, besides television and, and some exposure in college, um, I really kind of, I, I had this visceral reaction to seeing that film, the music, the soundtrack, the acting, the story was so bizarre and to be so captivated uh, by, this, by this, uh, this medium really kind of shook me and I became in, intensely interested in photography and um, and uh, filmmaking, especially Super 8 cameras. Like I, I was sort of a mechanically minded person. So to have this, this ability for uh, storytelling using this really cool, complex mechanical machine to then capture images that could then sort of capture this moment in time that you could then later show someone and 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 convey an emotion i i just was like this what is this this is like this is like magic when i came back to davidson and finished my final year there i took a class from professor zoran kuzmanovich who taught this class film as a narrative art and we got to watch films that were based on novels and that were sort of how they were interpreted into visual storytelling. And then we got to make our own films. So, so that, that was like a very intense, uh, quick, you know, just one year really of studying it academically, but I became very intrigued. And so that gave me the fire and I started making my own movies and this and that while I was in North Carolina. Then, um, I had to make a decision at some point. Um, I was out of college and I had been working for a real estate developer for a couple of years. I was also very interested in urban planning. And I decided to, I got an opportunity to drive cross country and got an opportunity to visit a movie set, a 
television set in Los Angeles because of a cousin of mine. And I, I uh, packed my car and drove cross country and found a place to live. And that's pretty much the extent of my, my uh, connection to the business was landing in LA in, in a car. So pretty cool. That, that's the beginning of the story. And that was in 1997, May, okay. May 97. I drove cross country. Wow. Do you remember what movie uh, you got to go visit? Well, yeah. So, so my mother, she had a, a cousin who was a uh, working actor. His name was Lane Smith. He was in tons of stuff. He was like my cousin, Vinny. And he was, he was playing, uh, he was playing, uh, it was in the, the show Lois and Clark, which is a television yeah. show. Superman. Uh, Superman. Yeah. yeah. The Superman show. And, and he played Perry White, the editor of the Daily Planet. Cool. So I went out, I, before I drove cross country, I thought I would go check it out. So I think it was like maybe April, bought a ticket, flew to LA, rented a car in the San Fernando, like literally I rented, I think the car was $12 a day. If there is <laughs> such a thing. Like, I mean, it was this tiny little two door, like Yugo type of tiny car, rented a car, went to his fancy house in studio city spent the night and he left the next day for a week and gave me basically took me to, well, so I get there, we go to set at Warner brothers. He introduces me to everybody and says, this guy's going to be hanging, shadowing you guys for a week. Um, and then Lane left. He went to, I don't know where he went. He left town, gave me his parking pass on the Warner brothers lot in my little Yugo. And I literally, pulled up to his name like lane smith parked and i parked in his space on the lot and shadowed the camera department for 12 hours a day for a week wow they hated me they were like who are you (laughs) what what who what how is it that where did you come from who's this ick that just shows up from the middle of nowhere and all of a sudden (laughs) in your way and i wanted i was just like you know so amazed and 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 uh i was good i was polite i asked good questions and stuff. Yeah. i tried not to annoy i mainly just wanted to watch and see what's going on mm-hmm. but um i'm still friends with all of those people though, and i've <laughs> you know come across them we've we've all stayed in touch we're very good friends i really got very i was very lucky yeah to find all of those to have all of those those things line up yeah. and then also to have that information and also to know that i specifically wanted to do camera yeah Mm -hmm. I I was I really wanted to do be in the camera department Mm -hmm. and so I moved in there and I bought a book um that taught taught you how to load magazines how to load film into magazines and all the different camera magazines the magazine is a device that holds yeah the film it unrolls on one side goes through the camera and then is rolled up on the other side so there's the the unexposed part of the film and then it goes through the camera it's exposed and then it becomes the exposed side and that you know it's all going to be in complete darkness and you have to learn how to and i learned how to load all the magazines that were wow. in use and and uh just by reading that book so i've just started calling people so yeah i'm a film loader i'm going to load your student yeah. film or help you on a commercial or be a pa or whatever so i did that for a while um making peanuts i mean yeah. no money at all involved and i mean i was just basically living off of you know this was my kind of internship period yeah but i did start getting work uh starting i i i, I got really really lucky 
Um, I had been working for a while and I landed a job by the following winter. So I'd been in LA for six months and I landed a job on this movie as a camera PA. So I was in the camera department, but I was the production assistant dedicated to the camera department. And my job was to make, keep the uh, video monitor set up and plugged in for Gary Marshall who and on this movie, uh, The Other Sister, with wow. Juliette Lewis and yeah. Diane Keaton and yeah. um, all these incredible actors. I mean, it was a yeah. huge movie. And it was the, yeah. the DP was Dante Spinati. And, it was, and he was, uh, had just been nominated and on that show had won, uh, while we were on that show, won um, uh, an Academy Award for L.A. Confidential. That yeah. Yeah. Shot. yeah, that's a great movie. So, here I am. I just land. I walk in, and I just you know. It, it's kind of a whole story in itself. But I, I'm like the low man on the totem pole. Get making sandwiches for the, and getting coffee and setting up the thing and running the cable and just being the you know doing whatever they wanted me to do. Wow. I was so psyched to be on a giant movie and didn't even really appreciate at the time what an amazing opportunity it was. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I, I was working on that, uh, met all kinds of people, uh, got to see what it's like to be on an A-list set. And fast forward, uh, I made was making lots of friends and meeting lots of cool people. Fast forward to the following summer, I get an opportunity to work on a, through, I think it was through those guys from the other sister. They, they, they I get a job on a non-union movie I think it was called uh, Slow Burn, I think it was. But they needed it. It was non-union. They needed a loader. So I went and did it. It was paid. You know, I was mm-hmm. like, great. This is a real gig. It was 30, day, 30 shooting days, which is exactly what you need to get it. You need to do 30 days to get into the union. But okay. you, they have to be union days. Mm-hmm. So about halfway through, the show turned union. And the show turned union. And I got in the union, which wow. was fantastic um which was di- very difficult to do back then it was a huge catch-22 okay. uh you know that you could only work on union jobs if you're a union but you couldn't there was no you couldn't just pay to get in you had to yeah. qualify right so so that and that was i should back up the the knowing that i wanted to be in the camera department or to learn more and whatnot back in the 90s the only way that you could get experience or even like get your hands on a motion picture camera was to work your way up through some craft yeah the craft would be the grip department the craft would be the camera department so well a craft would be cinematography gripping uh set lighting props uh, art department. Um, so for our listeners who don't know, what is gripping? What is a grip? So, yes. so, so a cinematographer is, uh, in charge of three departments on a set, the cinematographer who also known as the director of photography. It's the same, the same job, the same person, uh, a cinematographer, uh, has the camera department, which you would expect. And that is the part the department that oversees everything to do with the camera camera operators, the focus pullers, the film loaders, not that there's that many film loaders, there, but the data management, the, all that. They're in the camera department. Then you have the grip department. The grip department is in charge of all the, basically the heavy stuff that could kill you. So it's like, like the C stands, the flags, the giant 
the giant uh, uh, silks, the 20 by silks that you put up there. They're, they're the ones that are going to use the, the, the cranes to move stuff. They're the ones that operate the dollies that the cameras go on. So they're for camera support and therefore anything that's going to cut or modify the light. Okay. So if you need to have a silk over overhead silk on something, that's the grips. They're the ones that are going to rig the giant silk over the actors. If you're going to have a giant 40-foot dolly move, they're the ones that are going to lay down all the track and put the put the 400-pound dolly on there and get it all set up for the for me to ride down the, the, the thing. Um, then the electrical department, the third department that, that the cinematographer uh is in charge of is the set lighting or the electric department. So they're everything that plugs in that could kill you from electricity. <laughs> so so they're they're the lighting and then they're also the electrical distribution on a set. So um the and that's uh and so the the lighting department and the grip department work in in per, right next to each other because the electricians will set a light and then the grips will come in and set a flag right next to the light to keep. So they'll place the light and the electricians will, sh I mean, the grips will shape the light. So they're constantly working together. And then the cameras department is kind of them. So that's the three uh, departments that allow a cinematographer to do what they do. So a film set is broken up into different departments and by their craft. So, and each of them usually has a respective union that goes along with it. Sometimes it's like the, you know, the drivers and I can't remember who else the drivers are. Oh, craft service and the craft service is like snacks, basically. Uh, and the drivers, I think they're in the same union, 399. And then they're, you know, cameras in a union and the electricians are in a union. So we all have our different unions and different uh, rules that, that govern it. And it's kind of like based on the military in some way. So, okay. you know, this is, this stuff is not that glamorous. I mean, it's yeah. like, it's, it's a, it's an industry. It's a, we are talking about a factory floor that can move around. It's very mobile. Okay. Yeah. The creative, the creative jobs are far fewer. Yeah. Uh, my job as a camera operator is a creative job, but I had to work my way through the department in my craft to get to this place for years Yeah, to get to the, be trusted enough with enough experience to get to be able to be able to make creative decisions, which is a little bit backwards. But back then it was like, you got to go and you got to wax on, wax off, yeah. do the, you know, not fun jobs for a long time. And then maybe you'll get a shot at something, doing something fun and your career will be, yeah. you know, worth your life will be worth living. Yeah. So, um, so, but yeah, but it's long, it's a lot of long hours and a lot of uh, time to get that experience, you wow. know, and understand all the interactions of all these relationships on a yeah. set. Yeah, definitely. So what kind of projects have you worked on? Have you been a camera operator on? Well, right now um, I'm working on a TV show called The L Word on Showtime. Oh, yeah. um, I'm the A camera operator on that, but um, we have the pandemic going on. So uh, I'll start with this. So this started December 1st. It was great. It was the first like long form job that I had gotten that I'd had since February. Wow. wow. So nothing. The whole city shut down in March. Everything yeah. shut down. 
there's been no work at all. I mean, so in August, I started working on a handful of commercials and day here, day there, and that started picking back up. But yeah, December, this job came up and it's 20 weeks. This is a great, I really like this show a lot. I like my work on it. It's Uh really fun. Um, I like the team. Prior to that, um, last year, I worked on Make. So I was working for David Fincher. And I did uh, Mindhunter, the second season of Mindhunter, oh, cool. which was a real, that was a, a big career boost for me to go yeah. and do a full season for Fincher. And I, so I've done two projects for him. I worked on Legion a bunch. Uh, that was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. I love that show. Um, Legion's great. Uh, the first season was just spectacular. Yeah, I loved it. Was. There was a show called Corporate that I operated on, which was one of my most fun, all-time favorite. I did the first season of that. And that was kind of like my big move up. That's when I first started operating. Prior to that, I was a focus puller. So what um, does a focus puller do? A focus puller literally keeps the shots in focus. Okay. There is – so they hold um, now typically – so it, traditionally on film, you would have the so the, the lens – you turn the, the lens and it shifts the optics to focus between near and far. Sounds simple, right? However, at certain depths of fields, which is in vogue now, certainly, is to shoot at the most punishing f-stop, which is wide open, which makes gives your depth of field the narrowest that it possibly can be so that the background behind the subject is completely out of focus, but this so that the subject will then pop out into the in the foreground. It is the focus board's job to maintain the focus at all times on the subject. And then if there is a, for the lines, if I'm all of a sudden talking to somebody, if I turn and talk to somebody on the other side of the room, the focus puller will shift the focus back to there mm-hmm. at exactly the right time, ideally. So and then when they turn back, the focus goes shifts back to them. None of that is automatic that is all done manually on uh-huh. every single frame of every single show you watch on television or in movies today yeah that is all done manually by a human being wow and so, so someone's operating the camera and that person's job is just to worry about the focus yes and that is that is the that is the one thing that you cannot fix is focus yeah. mm-hmm. in post yeah. If it's out of focus, it's ruined. Yeah. And traditionally, you wouldn't know that until the next day when you see dailies after right. they right. the film off, come back, and the operator's looking through just the worst eyepiece in the world <laughs> to see at, at very low light because the way the optics work in motion picture cameras, they don't know if it's in focus or not. I mean, they have an idea. It has to be really out of focus, but you don't really know until the next day. Uh, on dailies that, that the film was in, for the shots were in focus or not. Now you can tell instantly. Now that focus pullers, they do it remotely, remotely by, you know, I'm talking about a dozen to 20 feet to mm-hmm. 30 feet away. They have these little devices that are connected to electric motors, still connected to the lens. And they look at these giant high res monitors, super clear, and they're pulling focus off that. And so they're doing it visually, but Back in the day, Steve Meisler's of the world, none of this was done by looking through it. The operator was looking through, and the focus puller was literally estimating down to the half inch of how far a subject was away from the film plane, not just from like approximately the camera, the exact film plane where the lens was focusing to. They're telling if it's 
six feet four or six feet eight, and when there's a turn, when they turn their head and all that. So you need to watch film. They're back in the day, and there were no monitors to, mm-hmm. to look at it. They're doing all of this just by judging wow. on their eye. So when I went to visit that, I was just like blown away by that. That's fact incredible. That, like, yeah, it's incredible. It's a crazy job, and it's amazing that people are able to do to judge, you know, to know how to do it. I mean, I was pretty good at it. I was did I never did giant features as a focus puller. You get good at it, but it's always stressful, yeah. especially if it's you know. Tom Cruise is out of focus, then you're fired. Yeah. You know, it's, just, it, it's like, it's not even a question. Oh, he's out of focus. You're done. Out. You know, don't yeah. come back tomorrow. You're done. So nobody cares that it's hard. It just has to be perfect. Right. right. So that's kind of the expectation of the, in the film business. That is the trajectory that I took, which was mm-hmm. to work, start at the bottom uh-huh. as a camera PA. Then I was a film loader for five years. And on the, as a film loader, I worked on some of the biggest projects I've ever worked on. Somehow, I alternated between uh, Dante Spinotti as my boss and Roger Deakins as my boss. And so I'd go back and forth from one film to the next. So that's how I got to work for the Coen brothers wow. and Soderbergh and Barry Levinson and uh, all kinds of great projects. I've got to do a lot of really great projects early in my career. Wow. So that's incredible. That was great. So when you're actually on set working as, let's say, as a camera operator, who is giving you direction? It's, is it the director? Is it the cinematographer? Is it um, somebody else? Who that is, is a great question. So my current, so it depends. It depends on how, it depends a, a lot on a lot of things. My current job, one of the reasons that I'm enjoying this particular job so much is because I'm given a lot of responsibility in this position because I help design the scenes, the shot design for the scene, how we're going to actually accomplish shooting a scene. So I get called in and they do it. So what happens typically is there's a, a private rehearsal, which is the director, the DP, and the actors. And they go through the scene. They read the lines. They act it out. And they kind of, they, they're in the space where it's going to happen. So let's say it's a living room. So they're in the living room. They're going to be on the couch. And then they stand up. And then one of them walks off or something like that. So then they call a uh, marking rehearsal. So a re- rehearsal for Mark. So all the whole crew comes in. We watch one. And while they're showing us what they've come up with, they being the actors, uh, the second AC, part of their job responsibility, is to mark on, with tape on the floor like you would on in theater. They would mark a tease where they stand and, and so that we can remember what they do. And they give them, and that way we know the, the DP will know how to light them and then the, the stand-ins will know where to stand and all this sort of stuff. We can rehearse without them while they go do hair and makeup. So we watch this marking rehearsal. Then uh, the, the actors leave, they go get ready, go put on their costumes, get made up all that stuff and then and then we have time to light the scene and figure out what the heck we're going to do and how we're going to make it happen so then the director and dp and i we will and the other operator there's two operators in the show the four of us will talk about like how are we going to cover this what are the parameters what are the must-haves in terms of like oh do you need a close-up at this moment do you want to can it sit in a wide for the whole time is there um you know, uh, do we need to do a lot of following them around? Where's the second camera going to be during this whole time? Am I going to do the wise? They're going to do the tight. In this particular job, we are all handheld and we usually only, we have to do everything in two setups. So 
we're doing our wide and our tight, covering all the way through on one side, and then we turn around and we cover everything through on the other side. Right. And that's that's unique. I don't usually do that. I usually break it up into a ton of different shots. But this one, they're they're not wanting to work that way. And it's a wonderful exercise, and they really are relying heavily on me to figure this out. Well, the reason I have the experience for them to rely on it is because I work for Fincher. Yeah. Well, Fincher doesn't give a about what I think. He is the opposite experience. He doesn't even talk to the operators. He doesn't care. He knows my name. Yeah. He's going to tell me I'm doing it wrong, <laughs> you know, for the after we've done 45 takes and I'm, you know, and then tell me how terrible of an operator I am. But the thing is, I did learn a ton from from working on basically a year on Fincher sets. And so I learned a ton about coverage and composition, and he's very, very, very particular about how everything is. Mm -hmm. And so he doesn't want me to weigh in on anything. He already knows how he wants to do it. He only, at this point, he trusts me to tell him if there's a problem uh -huh. or if somebody's not doing something right or if I like it could be done a better way. But we're talking about like, Oh, hey, David, I think it'd be better if the frame were like this so you could see the whole computer. So, you know, instead of like that, hey, right. is it okay? Do you want to see the file cabinet over there? Uh, like, do you want to kind of move it like that much? You'd be like, no, I like to split the file cabinet. That's, I mean, that's literally my entire conversation. This, one, L word, I mean, I've got to, I'm designing the scene, like how mm -hmm. to do everything. So it's so much more fun, mm -hmm. much more creative. So yeah. the, the the Fincher world is um, is great for the resume, and it was great as an experience. And you're creating very high quality work, and the expectations are extremely high. But yeah. it's all about execution. Yeah. So it's about executing the shot perfectly multiple times in a row, 30, okay. 40, 50, 60 times in a row, and not screwing up as possible. You know what you do, you screw up. I mean, yeah. everybody does. So. Yeah. <laughs> You know, but so, so that's the, that's the range. Very cool. So I don't know, hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any advice? Cause you mentioned before you wanted to mention kind of what it took to get to where you're at in the industry. So do you have any advice for people who might be interested in? Well, I mean, I chose kind of this path that was very like, it's like an apprenticeship yeah. path, you know, yeah. and, Definitely. and it's like working your way up through the ranks and a very hierarchical system. It's very traditional for this business. And I think there's a lot of merit to that. But mm -hmm. what suffered was that I kind of had to give up what I was passionate about for a long time. Now, I mean, what kids, what everybody has at their disposal is so amazing to yeah. me. It's just like the fact that the technology is so readily available for someone who's creative. It, yeah. It's pretty pretty remarkable the problem is it also means it's available to about 50 million other people right. that you're competing yeah. with and right. competing for eyeballs right so on the one hand that's really great that doesn't mean that you're going to have anything cool to point it at which brings you into the whole thing of like production design mm -hmm. acting the script like the stuff that's super important it was is now what's on the other side of the lens so my advice for folks is to just make stuff yeah. You know, and just to be just, there's really not, there's no excuse not to be making things and right. to be coming up with good ideas that you then make. Mm -hmm. 
or even bad ideas that you then make. Yeah. Like don't just don't just come up with the idea and don't do anything with it. Like actually execute the idea yeah. and edit it and put it on YouTube for three or four people to see. Mm-hmm. And if only three or four people, it doesn't matter. It's done. Now move yeah. on to the next project and make right. some other you know thing about your cat. Doesn't matter. <laughs> just make it and get it done and make yeah. more. You know, this business is a work for hire job to job you're constantly unemployed mm-hmm. and looking yeah. for more gigs that we're unemployed all the time yeah so mm-hmm. let's just make something you know yeah very cool that is cool last question for the interview portion of our show um do you have any favorite moments that you've had on set yeah oh that's a great question <laughs> yeah when you're a camera operator there's all this chaos there's everybody getting ready for stuff there's the everybody you know getting ready for the shot and there's like People are like setting up stuff and drilling and there's like, you know, they're like moving walls and the actors are rehearsing stuff. And then all of a sudden they, the, they say rolling and everybody has to get quiet. And all of a sudden it's the actors and you executing. It's like, there's only like a handful of people that actually do anything while you're rolling. It's the actors are acting, the sound guy has got the boom, you're on set with your dolly grip. And the focus puller. That's it. There's nobody else. There's no other people. There might be some guy over like wafting smoke or something, but I mean he's he's not participating. Like this right. is the these are the people that are doing the dance that are making the movie. Mm-hmm. So that is a very special thing often. That's not one specific moment, but that is kind of like <laughs> what you look forward to when everything right. clicks and you know that you're getting the shot. That that's fun. Yeah, that's cool. Very cool. Okay, 1917. Yeah, so let's talk about 1917. Yeah, let's Um. get into it. Today we're discussing the 2019 film 1917. The movie was directed by Sam Mendes and stars George McKay, Dean Charles Chapman, Mark Strong, Colin Firth, and Benedict Cumberbatch. It received 10 nominations at the Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director, and it actually won three for Best Cinematography, Best Visual Effects, and Best Sound Mixing. Heads up, we're going to be spoiling the movie, but before we get into it, Susan, can you give us a quick breakdown? What was this film about? Yeah, so this film really centers around uh, two British soldiers. We have Lance Corporal Blake, and he is being sent on a mission, and he's told to choose one other soldier to go with him. So he chooses his friend, Lance Corporal Schofield. So their mission, they find out, is to go get, they have to cross into kind of enemy territory, um, and they have to get to another set of troops, Colonel McKenzie's troops, and their job is to try to tell him to call off a scheduled attack on the German army because it's actually a trap. Also within this other arm, um, set of soldiers, there's 1,600 of them, including Blake's brother. So the stakes are really, really high for especially Blake. Because um, not only is he helping save the army, he's helping save his brother too. So we follow their journey. It's very harrowing. And we're going to get into talk about, um, especially how this movie was shot, really added a lot to the tension in the story. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, before we go any further, Will, you picked this movie to watch. Why did you choose 1917? The movie, in my mind, was successful. Uh, the way it was shot helped convey the emotional weight of the story. Mm-hmm. And I, I love films that touch that really pull me in emotionally and and like really get me on the edge of my seat and and like where I feel like I've got something at stake in the story or with the character and really want to pull pull for something 
I just thought it was really successful at that. And it took us on a journey that was really unique. It showed us a period of history that was fascinating and harrowing and should never be forgotten. It's also one of my favorite cinematographers who I was, I, so I worked, I used to work for Roger Deakins um, as a film loader on for, uh, and so I know what it's, I, I just could hear him. I just knew what it was, what he was like, what it would have been like to be on that set mm-hmm. and, and how much of a huge impact he had on designing that whole thing. Simple story that the simplicity of it helped get you get closer to it Mm -hmm. and i don't mean it wasn't complex to make i just mean that like this the whole story arc yeah just basically get from point a to point b story it wasn't it wasn't complicated Mm -hmm. right yeah it's a a mission it's like you got to get this thing to that guy like what do you think what is that a mcguffin mcguffin a mcguffin yeah so it has a mcguffin thing right its elegance is in its simplicity i thought Mm -hmm. in that regard and it didn't need to be any more complicated because you were still able to connect with these different scenes and and with these these characters yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think this movie was incredible. Mm-hmm. And I'm, you know, I'm so happy that you picked it cuz I I you know, we watched it yesterday and I loved it. And oh, the glad. idea of the film is that it's supposed to be one continuous take. So there's yeah. no cuts in the film. I mean, there are and they cheat a couple times, but that's the idea and it for me, it really put me in the in with those characters yeah. to experience what they were experiencing. Yeah, I felt like I was on Every I even said about 15 minutes in the movie, I was like, I feel like I'm on every step of this trip with them and not in a good way. I feel like I'm I'm in this movie with these characters and it's really powerful. Yeah, I thought it was so successful in that way as well. And and, and that fact that you don't and that you're looking for the cuts or where they could cheat it like that was kind of became a fun game. You were going through of it, knowing that that was their narrative, like that special narrative device, like, oh, it's a one continuous take. Yeah. was really fun. I was thinking, you know, because we've seen long shots in films before, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, and a couple of them that we've talked about before, like Children of Men, has very long shots that's really complex and really, really incredible to watch. And in this film, it, it really stands out to me how, you know, Sam Mendes is such a visual director. And some yeah. of the shots are so incredibly beautiful and dangerous uh, and it's so engrossing. I'm, I'm thinking about the scene where he's, you know, sort of lost in that maze of a, of a city and that huge buildings on fire and, you know, the light oh, yeah. is incredible, mm-hmm. you know, so for them to, and the actors are great. Oh yeah. Totally great. I 100% believe that they're living, you know, what's happening to them. And so for that to be happening while they're also doing this technical feat. Yeah. Yeah. And just thinking about the size of the sets they had to use for those long shots. I mean, they had to walk through those trenches. Like, you know. The trenches were a mile. They made a a trench that was a set that was a mile long. So I think that what you're getting at is the, the key to this is that they they had something amazing to look at for that whole time. Yes, now, yeah. obviously, they broke it up into many months of shooting, many or many weeks of shooting. So it wasn't like that they actually shot it all in one continuous take. But the point is that they had that every, just like any other film, every frame was planned and intentional. And yeah. I think that that is something that that's the big takeaway there. Yes, it's incredible that it looks like it's all one continuous shot. But what's amazing about it is it looks like one continuous convincing shot. 
right it was of stuff that is very intentional yeah yeah. It's almost like filming a play, right? Because once you're in, like, I think what, like those nine, 10 minute shots, once you're in it, you just got to keep going. And you got to keep going. Yeah. yeah. And executing that. It's a very, very difficult feat to, to, to execute as from a technician's point of view or, yeah. or a camera operator's point of view. It's a, uh, it becomes the choreography of it is, is, is tough. Yeah. I think that having the performance married to the production design and the operating and all of it just uh it's a real feat and that that film's a classic it will never mm-hmm. i mean that is going to be the all choir of the western front on the western right. front, uh film equivalent forever i mean that that is a that is a real cultural treasure that they made story-wise you know one of the main characters dies halfway through the movie mm-hmm. yeah uh, and that, i know that was very surprising to me. Um, you know, that's not common in, in movies. I mean, it's a war movie, so you're, you expect people to die. But, you know, he was sort of like the A character for yeah. up, up, up until that point. And then the other guy takes over and finishes the mission. So even in the midst of all of this technical brilliance and amazing directing and acting, the story also was very interesting and captivating. And yeah, the stakes felt really real. Yes, they did. That's what I was going to say. It really raised the stakes with mm-hmm. him dying because all of a sudden we're vested. I mean, yeah. we're right there. We we are part of this guy's success. It's a it's magic when it all comes together, you know. Right. Yeah. yeah. Something it, very special. Yeah. Absolutely. Will Duterborn, thank you so much for being on the show. We're going to mm-hmm. finish today. With a little game that we're calling Direct Hit. So here's how this works. Uh, We're going to see how well both of you know famous films and famous directors. Will, you're actually going to be playing against Susan. Okay. (laughs) So here are the rules. I'm going to start by naming a lesser known work of a director. As soon as you know the director, shout out the name. If you're wrong, the other player gets to guess. If they're wrong or they don't know, then I'll keep naming movies okay. from that director. I have five directors for you to identify. The first person to name three will win our prize. And we don't actually have a prize officially. We'll mail you something. Okay. We have to figure the prizes out still. <laughs> bragging, bragging right. Yes, That's definitely right. that. Definitely yeah. that. So as soon okay. as you know it, yell at the name. Okay. Okay. Away we go. No guesses? Okay. Next film, Jarhead. Oh, Sam Mendes. Yeah. Sam Mendes is correct. <laughs> I was like, wait. Are you Will, you get a point. <laughs> okay. Yay. All right. I guess I'll have to see uh, the way we go now. Other, <laughs> yeah. other films that uh, I picked for Sam Mendes are Road to Perdition, American okay. Beauty, yeah. Skyfall, yeah. Spectre, yeah. and 1917, so. our film there from we go. today. All right. Cool. So that's one point for Will. All right. Next one, Firelight. I don't know that one. Nope. The Sugarland Express. Oh, I should know that. Oh. Next one? I don't know it. Next one. 1941. All right, we're going to get a long lot. car Y? Nope. Nope. We're going to get a lot easier. Hook. Oh, my gosh. Oh, but I don't know who directed Hook. Is no, it I, like... I just... The next one's going to get it. Okay. Jaws. Oh, Spielberg? Yeah. yeah. Steven Spielberg. Yeah. I had to because I was like, wait. So Sugarland Express? Is that what you said? Yeah. The Sugarland Express was Steven Spielberg. Wow. What was that? What was that about? Was that a, was that a kid's show or something? What was it? It, uh, it was just one of his early films. 
Um, I so think, weird. I've yeah. never heard of it. So, of course, Spielberg went on to direct E.T., the Indiana right, Jones yeah. film, Saving Private Ryan, Jurassic Park, and Schindler's List. Oh, my gosh. It's yeah. 2-0. I got to step up my game. Yeah, Will, you have a strong lead. <laughs> one more. Okay, to... okay. All right, next one. Okay. The Loveless. Blue Steel. Next film, K-19, The Widowmaker. Keep going. Detroit. I do not know. Oh, all right, the next two you will get. Okay. Okay. Zero Dark Thirty. Oh, yes. Uh, Catherine Bigelow. Bigelow yes! yes. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> Correct. Good job, Will. That Was is three Hurt points. Hurt Locker on there? Hurt Locker's yeah. on that film. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Okay, that's cool. Detroit. I didn't know she made that. Yep. 2017, uh, she made that. All right, we have two directors left. We're going to okay. keep going just to see who gets the points. Okay. Will, okay. you are the one. Woo! All right, so... Playing for second place. So, yeah, playing for second. <laughs> <laughs> All right, first film, Kronos. Next one is Mimic. No guesses? No. All right. Blade 2. Blade 2. I don't know. I didn't see that. I don't remember who directed it. It's a solid it. film. <laughs> Next up, Crimson Peak. Oh, my gosh. I saw that movie. Yeah, we watched it. Mm-mm. Next film, Hellboy. The one that did um, Pan's Labyrinth. Yep, that's on here. Uh, Guillermo yeah. del Toro. Del Toro. Yes. yes, yes. He's a good boy, Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> that's right. He did Hellboy okay. Pacific Rim and The Shape of Water. Yes. The Shape of Water. He's such an amazing director. And I, just, like, I, I wish that I were more into his genre because mm -hmm. I have such a huge respect for him. It's just, he's a genius. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely genius. Beautiful, beautiful yeah, films. Really amazing. All right, last one. one. Last, last. Okay. Following, Insomnia. Oh. Memento. Oh yeah. So this is um yeah because he his uh because I want to see Tenant Christopher Nolan. Yes. Oh duh. Yes, that's right. Christopher Nolan is correct. Congrats, right. Will. Oh, that was four to one. That's all, all right. right. <laughs> the films from Christopher Nolan were Memento, Inception, yeah. The Dark Knight, and Tenet. So. You guys, it was such a, a delight to hang out with you guys. And, yeah. And so Absolute pleasure. The, uh, for the, thank for you, the afternoon. Yeah, yeah thank you guys. Really thank great. you so much for joining us. Life in the Credits is hosted and produced by me, Susan Swarner. And me, Ben Bloom. It's executive produced by Michelle Levin. The music is written and performed by Steve Trowbridge. You can hear more of Steve's music at TrowbridgeSounds.com. The show logo is created by Melissa Durkin. If you'd like to support Life in the Credits and get access to exclusive perks, you can do so at Patreon.com. If you'd like to follow or get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life in the Credits or shoot us an email at lifeinthecredits at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. What you look forward to and everything right. clicks and you know that you're getting the shot. That, that's fun.